You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today we start a new series, this on Spanish conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado and his search for the fabled seven cities of gold. In this quest, Coronado led a large expedition from Mexico to as far north as present-day Kansas and through parts of the American Southwest. It is a classic tale of the early Spanish conquistadors. Some notes about this series. Our first item is regarding the name Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. In English, we often drop the middle part of the name, meaning we call our explorer Francisco Coronado, or just Coronado. But in Spanish, he is called Vasquez de Coronado. Both versions are used by scholars and historians, and I'll use both, depending on how things are flowing in the read of my script. Not a huge deal, but I wanted to explain that up front. Second thing is regarding our sources. Unlike so many stories from this era, we actually have some decent documentation about Coronado's expedition. This includes letters and reports from Vasquez de Coronado himself and others in the party. But the best primary source is a detailed description of the enterprise written down by one of the expedition's soldiers, Pedro de Castaneda. The man recorded his version of the expedition shortly after its conclusion, and it's a great piece of history and the key source for our narrative. However, despite the decent amount of documentation, I do want to note that there are a lot of inconsistencies within the various texts. Nothing major, but I just wanted to alert you to that fact. Third thing is regarding the route of Coronado's expedition. I have put a map of it on our website, explorerspodcast.com, but know that looking at this map can be a bit wonky, and that's because Coronado broke up his forces at one point, so there are multiple columns of Spaniards wandering around the American Southwest. We will talk about each of these offshoots during the podcast. So that is it. Let us get started. The story of Francisco Vasquez de Coronado and the search for the seven cities of gold. Ah, gold. Everybody loves gold. People lust after it. People kill for it. People die for it. Conquistador Anna Cortez said, quote, I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart which can only be cured with gold. End quote. I have in the past made fun of the Spanish due to their never-ending quest for gold. They repeatedly chased after rumors of cities of gold or silver or whatever. They almost always ended up coming back empty-handed, or not at all, victims of their own greed. However, I did say almost, and that's because for every hundred rumors that ended with disappointment, there was the one rumor that netted Tenochtitlan, a.k.a. the Aztec Empire, or Cusco and the Incan Empire. Cortez and Pizarro had followed those stories. 
gone deeper and deeper into the wilderness in the mountains, and come back with a fortune. And thus, when every Spanish expedition set out into the interior of the Americas, they had visions of finding and conquering the next great wealthy native empire. And that leads me to the legend of the Seven Cities of Gold, also known as Cibola and El Dorado. The story of Cibola can be traced back to Spain hundreds of years before Coronado and his expedition. According to the stories, Christians from Spain, or Portugal, both versions exist, fled their lands when the Moors invaded. They took all their wealth, loaded it on ships, and sailed west into the unknown ocean. These refugees settled on an island called Antia. It was also called the Island of Seven Cities. When explorers sailed west, they dared to think that maybe they would fight Antia and its legendary wealth. Let us jump to Mexico, circa 1520. The soldiers of Cortez's expedition heard stories from the Aztecs and other natives about a kingdom to the north that was powerful and wealthy. And in 1527, Penfila de Narvaez began an expedition to modern-day Florida, searching for the great native kingdoms that supposedly inhabited that region. Narvaez and his entire expedition would die over the next few years, except for four men, led by Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. Cabeza de Vaca and his companions wandered all over northern Mexico and the American Southwest before finding their way home in 1536. These men had heard tales of wealthy cities to the north, stories that intrigued Spanish officials. I want to note that one of the men with Cabeza de Vaca was an African slave named Esteban Nico. Also, quick shout out to some past episodes of our show. A few years ago, I did an episode about the Narvaez expedition. I then followed it up with a two-part series on Cabeza de Vaca's remarkable journey. I encourage you to listen to those stories if you have not. They are great lead-ins to this series. Anyhow, take all of these combined stories and legends, and you have speculation that the wealthy kingdoms to the north were none other than the cities of Cibola. This takes us up to 1538, with Spanish officials in Mexico looking for more information about these supposedly wealthy kingdoms. Antonio de Mendoza, the viceroy of New Spain, dispatched a small reconnaissance expedition led by Marcos de Nisa, a Franciscan missionary. The priest's name is technically de Nisa, but he's usually called Friar or Fray Marcos, which is what I will use. Friar Marcos, by the way, was not some novice campaigner, as he had been with Pizarro during the conquest of Peru. Mendoza tried to get one of the three Spanish survivors of the Narvaez expedition to accompany Friar Marcos, but they all declined the opportunity to return north. Instead, Mendoza turned to Esteban Nico, the African slave. The man had come back to Mexico City and been forced back into slavery. Kind of rude, considering he'd been critical to the survival of Cabeza de Vaca and the other Spaniards. Anyhow, he was ordered to accompany Father Marcos to the north as a guide. This seemed like a wise move, as Estevanico knew some of the native languages and had experience with the people. Fray Marcos had instructions telling him to keep detailed notes about the land and its inhabitants. He was, of course, to look for signs of wealth. He was also urged to avoid any hostile encounters with the natives. The company departed Mexico City in the fall of 1538, along with Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, the newly appointed governor of the frontier province of Nueva Galicia, on the northern edge of New Spain. They reached Compostela, the province's capital, in mid-December. Coronado then recruited a hundred native Indians to join Father Marcos on his expedition. The friar then headed north along Mexico's western coast, reaching Culiacan, the northernmost settlement of New Spain. His company departed the outpost on March 7, 1539, carrying a large number of trade goods. The small company initially did well, the natives welcoming them as they went north. Estevanico played the role of a medicine man, wearing bright clothing and feathers and carrying a gourd decorated with bells. On his previous journey through the region, 
Estefanico had found the natives respected mystics such as this, even if they didn't quite understand them. The expedition eventually crossed over the modern-day border of Mexico and the United States, entering Arizona. Fray Marcos eventually sent Estevanico ahead to scout out the territory. Estevanico couldn't read or write, so the friar had them communicate by Estevanico sending back crosses via messenger to the main party. The bigger the cross, the more important the discovery. The crosses, to Father Marcos' delight, started to come back bigger and bigger. One day, a cross the size of a person arrived. The messenger said they had reports of seven large and wealthy cities in the north, collectively called Cibola. Estevanico approached Cibola ahead of the main company and sent a messenger to the first village to announce his arrival. The answer was not good. The natives told the strangers to stay away or they would be killed. Perhaps he was overconfident due to his long experience in the wilderness, but Estevanico was unconcerned by the message and proceeded to the first of the seven cities of Cibola, which was actually Hawiku in present-day New Mexico. The people were the Zuni, a Native American Pueblo people. What happens next is a bit murky, but here we go. One story says that Estevanico reached the city and then attacked a local woman and was thus killed. Another story says the Indians took all the newcomer's stuff and killed Estevanico, riddling them with arrows, as well as others in the party. Yet another version has the locals holding Estevanico hostage for several days, killing him when he tried to escape. No matter, Estevanico was dead. The survivors would eventually bring back word to the main party of the man's demise. Father Marco would thus halt his progress north, concerned for the safety of himself and his men. He later reported that he got within sight of Cibola, but did not try and enter it. He described it as a beautiful city that was, quote, bigger than the size of Mexico, end quote. When he said Mexico, he was referring to Mexico City, which had been raised by Cortez following his conquest some two decades earlier. By this time, the city probably had a thousand or more Spanish-style homes and buildings. Friar Marcos also said the land around Cibola was good and bountiful. The friar returned to Mexico City, where Spanish officials eagerly seized on his enthusiastic report. Now, the big question is, why did Father Marcos make such a report to his superiors? The answer is, we don't really know for sure. But the report of Cibola and some of the other lands he visited were not very accurate. According to the friar, the lands and people were far more prosperous and numerous than in reality. So why the bad reports? Well, let's look at several possibilities. The first idea that has been talked about by historians is that Friar Marcos never actually reached Cibola. Otherwise, to talk about the city in such glowing terms seems like an incredibly stupid thing to do, knowing that Spanish officials would be all over following up on such a report. Well, perhaps Friar Marcos honestly believed Cibola was going to turn out to be this amazing place. Everyone he ran into said it was incredible, but after what happened to Estevanico, maybe the friar just didn't want to get too close, and thus he trusted the hype that had been fed to him about Cibola. And so, when he got back to Spain, he said he saw this great place to encourage further exploration. The second idea is that Father Marcos did see Haiwiku, and he let himself be deceived by what he saw. I've read that the Pueblo had six large adobe buildings, with at least 125 rooms connected to them. Some of the Pueblos that still exist today are pretty impressive looking, and perhaps to Friar Marcos it did look as big as Mexico City. But let's be honest, I doubt it. Like a lot of what the Friar wrote, there are a lot of embellishments. Bigger than Mexico City? Unlikely he could have made that mistake, and the surrounding lands weren't anything special. I wouldn't be surprised if Fray Marcos never saw Cibola, and he just wrote all the best stuff everyone said about the place. And I want to point out, to many of the native peoples, Iwiko would have been an incredibly impressive place. Big buildings, lots of food, turquoise would have been found in abundance, and perhaps even small amounts of precious metals. 
in the end, I think Brother Marcos was exaggerating tales that were already exaggerations. Let's be honest, he wouldn't be the first person to make up stuff to please his superiors. He was simply saying what they wanted to hear. I do want to note that Friar Marcos never really says anything about seeing gold. He talks about places of great wealth and prosperity, towns with buildings 10 stories high, that sort of thing. But he never really says anything about gold. Turquoise, yes, but no gold or jewels. No matter, Spanish Viceroy Mendoza was keen to find and conquer the wealthy native kingdom to the north. And for the job, he selected Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, the governor of Nueva Galicia, a province located in the northwest of Mexico and comprising the modern-day Mexican states of Jalisco, Sinaloa, and Nayarit. And with that, let us introduce our conquistador to our story. Francisco Vasquez de Coronado was born in Salamanca, Spain in 1510. His parents were Juan Vasquez de Coronado and Isabel de Luxan. His family were nobles, with Francisco being the second of four sons and two sisters. He was likely educated, at least to some degree. We know he could read and write. He was said to have had some interest in science. While we don't know specifics about the family, they were likely wealthy and important. However, according to tradition, the bulk of a family estate went to the eldest son. This meant that Francisco would have been expected to figure out his own way in life. For someone like Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, likely options for a career might have been the priesthood, government service, or the military. Francisco's two sisters became nuns. A younger brother went on to become the governor of Costa Rica, and another entered service in the Spanish Navy. As for Francisco, he went to the court of King Charles as a teenager. There he met Antonio de Mendoza, a distant relative to the king and the Spanish ambassador to Rome. Mendoza was about 20 years older than Vasquez de Coronado, but the two became friends. Mendoza even hired Coronado as an assistant. But the Spanish court was not in the future for the two men. Instead, it would be the New World that called out both. In 1530, Mendoza was appointed Viceroy of New Spain, one of the most important posts in the growing Spanish Empire in the New World. Mendoza didn't actually go to Mexico until 1535, but when he did, he brought along the 25-year-old Vasquez de Coronado, who was eager for the opportunity and adventure that lay ahead. Coronado quickly proved to be a reliable and capable official. In Mexico, Vasquez de Coronado had a marriage arranged for him. This was to 12-year-old Beatriz de Estrada, whose father, Alonso de Estrada, had been a colonial treasurer in the New World. Alonso was also rumored to be the illegitimate son of Ferdinand II, King of Aragon, and de facto King of Unified Spain until 1516. He had died in 1531, leaving Beatriz with a sizable and valuable estate. The couple would go on to have between five and nine children, depending on what source you read. Most sources say eight. In 1537, Coronado was tasked with putting down a revolt in the silver mine of Tosco, Mexico. He did so efficiently and with few casualties. This is what got him promoted to the post of governor of Nueva Galicia. Coronado and his family thus moved to Compostela, the province's capital. And that takes us up to the return of Friar Marcos in 1538 and his report about the existence of Cibola. For Mendoza and Coronado, this was the chance of a lifetime. To the north lay another Incan or Aztec empire. Mendoza selected Coronado to lead the expedition north. Mendoza was so confident about the enterprise, he sunk much of his own fortune into the endeavor. And Coronado did likewise, borrowing 70,000 pesos against his wife's estate. And so, as preparations were made for the expedition, Mendoza dispatched Melchior Diaz, the commander of the Spanish outpost at Culiacan, to investigate Father Marcos's findings. He departed on November 17, 1539, with 15 horsemen. 
Diaz reached some abandoned pueblos at what we now call Chichitiquicali, just over the United States-Mexican border in Arizona. Here he ran into snow and cold and turned around. What he saw had not been encouraging. He reported that he doubted the existence of Father Marcos's golden city. However, that report didn't get back to Coronado and Mendoza until March of 1540, with the expedition already underway. I will mention this report a bit later in our story. Another red flag no one seems to mention is gold. This was all about gold, and no one was bringing any back. It should have been a warning sign, but the Spanish were probably too blinded by the possibilities to see this. And so, preparations for the expedition to find the seven cities of gold continued. The expedition wasn't going to be a small one. A large force would go by land, while a second group would travel by ship up the coast and into the Gulf of California, carrying supplies and provisions. The idea was to sail up the recently discovered Colorado River Delta and connect up with the main body in the north. This would allow the expedition access to far more supplies than if they just hauled them overland. The naval contingent consisted of two ships and would later add a third, and was led by Hernando de Alacarn. For the Spanish, it was one of the largest expeditions ever assembled in the New World. Pedro de Castaneda called it, quote, the most brilliant company ever assembled, end quote. And thus men, food supplies, weapons, ammunition, and horses gathered at Compostela in early 1540. On February 22nd, a Sunday, they held mass and then had a parade, the Grand Army marching past Viceroy Mendoza and other dignitaries. The records that we have of this expedition are, to be honest, quite good. We have a lot of details, which is uncommon for the era. We even know the names of many of the men who partook in the venture, including the possessions each brought. There were around 350 Europeans in the expedition, most of them well-educated, younger sons of Spanish nobility. Like Coronado, they were here to find their fame and fortune. The number included at least 60 to 70 infantrymen and 230 horsemen, the latter with at least one horse each, although many of the men brought more than one. Coronado had 23 extra horses. In addition to the Spaniards, there were between 1,000 and 2,000 natives. While some of these would serve in a military capacity, many were there as support, cooking and cleaning and carrying supplies. There were also servants, slaves, and family members with the company. Also part of Coronado's expedition were five Franciscan friars, although one would return early after getting sick. One of the four remaining friars was Marcos de Niza, on whose word much of this expedition was taking place. In addition to all the people, there were lots and lots of livestock, including sheep, cattle, and pigs. The idea was to slaughter the animals along the way to feed the large force. It was essentially a small traveling town, and slow going, as the army moved with the slowest element. The army departed Compostela the day after their grand review and headed north. As noted, it was slow going, and the party managed only 300 miles by the end of March when they reached Culiacan. This was a pace of only 7 to 8 miles a day, and this was traveling on established roads. The army rested at Culiacan for several weeks. During this time, the reconnaissance force led by Melchior Diaz returned from their mission in the north. Diaz confided with Coronado his doubts regarding the truth of Father Marcos's reports. He had seen no evidence of a wealthy city, and many of the facts reported by the friar were gross exaggerations. Coronado passed this report on to Viceroy Mendoza and tried to keep Diaz's concerns from the rank and file. But that would be impossible. Soon there were rumblings within the ranks that Cibola and its riches were a farce. No matter, the army set out from Culiacan on April 22nd. This was the real push into the wilderness for the Spanish. The search for the seven cities of gold was underway. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The army of Francisco Vasquez de Coronado moves slowly north into the unknown. One tactic employed by Vasquez de Coronado was to break up his army into smaller groups. The reason for this was food and water. These lands were not suited to supporting a large group of men and animals. Water holes, for instance, were quickly drained when an entire army converged on a source, and grazing land was turned to dust by too many horses and livestock. By breaking up the army into smaller groups, there was less stress put on the water and food resources along the trail. This also allowed Coronado, or one of his captains, to travel ahead with a small force and scout out the route. Without the baggage train, such a detachment could travel much further and much faster than the main army, which could catch up on its own time. Another tactic used by Vasquez de Coronado was to set up small garrisons along the route to ensure he had a solid supply and communication route. Coronado went up the coast as long as he could, but turned inland as he was forced to follow a variety of river valleys through the mountainous lands. The expedition had to work its way through the mountain range, finding a pass at the source of the Rio Sonora, which today is called Montezuma's Pass. By June, the expedition was going directly north and following the San Pedro River into modern-day Arizona. The big issue at this point for Coronado's army was food. The further north the army went, the more barren the landscape became. The livestock brought along was eaten up, and fodder for the horses was hard to find. And the natives weren't exactly the most friendly and had little to offer in trade. Thus, the men were forced to forage for food more quickly than anticipated. Also, they grumbled about Friar Marcos, who had obviously exaggerated about the quality of the lands in the region. Once the expedition crossed into modern-day Arizona, they arrived at a simple Pueblo village. Friar Marcos said thousands lived here, but that was hardly the case. To everyone, it was obvious the man was not just exaggerating, but flat-out lying. Pedro de Castaneda, the soldier who wrote the chronicle of the expedition, wrote this about the anger directed toward the friar. Quote, Such were the curses that some hurled at Friar Marcos that I pray God may protect him from them. End quote. The men of the expedition were disappointed, especially because it meant no food. But Coronado and his army could do little more than venture north and reach the cities of Cibola. 
The expedition set out, sort of following what today is the border of modern-day Arizona and New Mexico. Horses were now dying, as were some of the Indian allies. The army eventually reached the Little Colorado River, a tributary of the Colorado River, and then the Zuni River. This was the territory of the Zuni people, and it was not long before the tired and hungry army came to Hawiku, the first of the seven cities of Cibola. On July 6, 1540, the Spaniards climbed a hill overlooking Hawiku and were crushed by what they saw. There were no great buildings, no glimmering streets of gold, no great metropolis. Hawiku was a simple village with adobe buildings, a population of no more than 800 people. Despite the bitter disappointment of not finding a great city, Coronado had a desperate need, food. His men and horses were malnourished. He later wrote that some of his men were so weak they could scarcely stand. The Zunis, however, wanted nothing to do with these strangers. When the Spanish approached, the Zunis drew a line in the dirt and wouldn't let them pass. When the Spanish tried, they were threatened by men armed with bows and arrows. The Spanish responded by reading what is called the Requirement. The Requirement was a papal proclamation stating that these lands were now a part of the Spanish Empire, and everyone had to become a Christian. The act of reading this document was, in reality, absurd. The natives had no idea what it really meant, and what they understood would have been treated with disdain. The reason for the requirement was to absolve Spanish forces of any crimes that were to follow, usually fighting, death, and conquest. If someone protested Spanish atrocities, officials would say, Hey, we warned them. We told them what the Pope said, and they refused to capitulate. That gave us every right to attack and kill and enslave them. Anyhow, as is usually the case, the reading of the requirement was met with hostility, this time a flight of arrows. Coronado's orders were to avoid fighting, but hey, these people had defied the Pope and the Spanish crown, their lawful lords, mind you, and attacked them. The Spanish, in their minds, had every right to retaliate. And thus, the conquest of Cibola began. Despite being exhausted and hungry, the Spanish were able to push the Zunis behind their walls, where they refused to surrender. The Spanish attacked, charging the village perimeter. The Zunis showered rocks down on the Spanish. Coronado, wearing the brightest armor and sporting a plumed feather in his helmet, was a prime target. He was struck several times, but mostly protected by his armor, at least for a time. Eventually, one of the rocks found its mark, knocking Coronado to the ground, unconscious. Two of Coronado's men, Garcia Lopez de Cardenas and Hernando de Alvarado, covered their commander's body to protect him, which may have saved his life. Coronado ultimately suffered several injuries, including an arrow to the foot, facial wounds, and many bruises. As for the fight, the Spanish soldiers, despite being outnumbered and exhausted, breached the walls of Hawiku, capturing or killing many of its defenders. Those that could hid and later fled. The Spanish victory was a result of determination, some say desperation, and its superior weaponry. And not just the arquebuses, which are rudimentary muskets. I've said before on the show that steel was the biggest reason for many Spanish victories in the New World. The natives of the Americas had never faced swords that could cut through just about any shield or armor that they could make, and native armor was no protection against crossbow bolts, war dogs, and war horses. And on the flip side, Spanish armor was nearly impervious to the bows and arrows of the native Indians. The Spanish were ultimately victorious, taking Hawiku in about an hour. The soldiers of Coronado's army immediately ransacked the Zuni storehouses, finding maize, squash, and beans. Coronado praised the native cakes, tortillas, made from ground corn, saying the Zuni, quote, make the best corn cakes I have ever seen anywhere, end quote. Hawiku itself was not big, but Coronado praised the brick houses, some of which were several stories high. But it was not anything like Father Marcos had described. Once the men of the expedition had eaten their fill, their attention turned to what was not found treasure. 
There was no gold, no silver, no jewels. They were so upset with Friar Marcos, the man whose reports had led them to this desolate place, that Coronado feared for the man's life. Thus he would send him back to Viceroy Mendoza, along with a messenger and a report. In the report, Coronado did not spare the friar, saying, quote, I can assure you that in reality he has not told the truth in a single thing he said, except for the name of the city and the large stone houses. End quote. Pedro de Castaneda was even more cutting in his narrative, saying, quote, Juan Gallego was going to New Spain with messages for the viceroy, and Friar Marcos was going back with him, because he, meaning Coronado, did not think it was safe for him to stay in Cibola, seeing that his report had turned out to be entirely false, because the kingdoms he had told about had not been found, nor the populous cities, nor the wealth of gold, nor the precious stones which he had reported, nor the fine clothes, nor other things that had been proclaimed from the pulpits. End quote. Ouch, that is a slapdown, and with that, Friar Marcos exits our tale. Coronado would visit the other nearby villages, finding them even smaller than Hawiku. Most of the locals fled before the Spanish arrived, and could not be convinced to return by Coronado. And thus, Coronado knew, without a doubt, that the seven cities of gold did not exist, at least not in this location. However, that does not mean he was ready to pack things in and head home. Remember, he had invested the family fortune in the expedition, and he desperately needed to find some return on his investment. And thus, Coronado turned to exploration to try and salvage the situation, writing to his boss, quote, I have determined to send men through the surrounding region in order to find whether there is anything, end quote. Coronado ultimately sent out several scouting parties, both east and west. I will give a brief rundown of each. The first group was led by Melchior Diaz. Diaz was the guy who had gone on the recon trip the previous year and had cast doubt on Friar Marcos's report. Anyhow, Diaz was now tasked with taking the now-disgraced Friar Marcos back to Mexico. I've read different stories about how far Diaz, along with another soldier, Juan Gallego, escorted Friar Marcos back to Mexico. Some say he took him as far as the outpost of San Geronimo, near present-day Uri, Sonora. That's three to four hundred miles. Others say he didn't quite go this far. Either way, once he sent Friar Marcos on his way, Diaz headed west, the idea to make contact with the maritime arm of the Coronado expedition. For this, he set out in September of 1540. Remember those Navy guys? They were led by Hernando de Alicarn. Well, Diaz would reach the confluence of the Colorado and Gila rivers at what is today modern-day Yuma, Arizona. There, the natives reported the Spanish ships had come and gone. Diaz found a cache of supplies and a message that stated that Alicarn had sailed up the Colorado River as far as he could go. After waiting many days without any news, he departed, saying his ships were too infested with worms to just sit around waiting, and thus Coronado would get no more supplies. In doing all of this, Diaz became the first European to cross the Colorado River. From there, he explored four days to the west of the river. It was at this time, or on his return journey, the details are unclear, that Diaz was involved in what would be a fatal riding accident. Diaz chased after a dog that was attacking a sheep. He threw a lance at the dog, but the lance stuck into the ground. Diaz ran into the back end of the lance, and it impaled his groin. He died 20 days later, on January 15, 1541. And that, painfully, wraps up the story of Melchior Diaz, as well as the naval contingent of the expedition. The next group I'll talk about was commanded by Pedro de Tovar. Tovar led a contingent of men northwest to the lands of the Hopi. The Hopi, just like the Zuni, did not welcome the Spanish, and thus a brief melee broke out, the Hopi surrendering after several of their people were killed. The Spanish were disappointed to find these lands as bereft of treasure as that of the Zuni. However, the Hopi did tell Tovar of a great river that lay to the west. 
Dovar returned from his excursion and told Coronado about this river, and that leads us to our next sidetrack, which was led by Garcia Lopez de Cardenas, one of the men credited with saving Coronado's life in the fight at Hawiku. These men departed in September 1540 and headed in a northerly direction for 20 days. It was here that they came upon a great river in a deep canyon. This was the Colorado River and the mighty Grand Canyon. It would have been quite the sight for the Spanish. From what we now call the South Rim, Cardenas's men twice attempted to descend to the river, but they could find no route. With his company suffering from dehydration, Cardenas ordered a return to Hawiku. Our final side expedition was led by Hernando de Alvarado. He took 20 or so men east in September 1540 into north-central New Mexico. Here they encountered a local native who they called Bagotes, which means whiskers in Spanish. Bagotes guided the company into the Rio Grande River Valley, where they found a cluster of villages in an area they called Tiwesh, which is around present-day Albuquerque, New Mexico. The native people were the Tiwa Pueblans. Interactions between the Spanish and the natives were initially good, with Bagotes leading Alvarado and his men from village to village. The villages along the river were bigger than the pueblos of the Zunis, and there was a lot of cultivated land surrounding them. Because of this, Alvarado sent a message back to Coronado, suggesting that the area would make a good place to spend the winter, as food and shelter was readily available. Alvarado explored up and down the Rio Grande, going as far north as what today is Taos. Bagotes then guided Alvarado to the east, through the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and into the Texas Panhandle, which is that northern section of Texas that sticks up on the map. While crossing through the mountains, a Spanish encountered a native slave who they called the Turk, because, well, he looked like a Turk. The Turk became another guide for the company, and will be important in a bit, so let's not forget him. Otherwise, here Alvarado and his men were greeted by a strange sight, thousands upon thousands of shaggy humpback oxen roaming the plains of the region. These were bison, and it is believed that this is the first time Europeans had seen the great animals. One man wrote, quote, There are such quantities of them that I do not know what to compare them with unless it be the fish of the sea. End quote. So as Alvarado headed back west to winter at Tiwesh, Coronado sent some of his men towards the location as well, led by Garcia Lopez de Cardenas, the guy who had been the first European to reach the Grand Canyon. Well, let's just say that things did not go well. Cardenas's men commandeered food, blankets, clothing, and shelter from the natives, as winter was now approaching and they lacked such essentials and they mistreated the women, which is a polite way to say they raped them. The Indians responded by killing a guard and stealing 30 horses. Cardenas retaliated by attacking and seizing a native village. Approximately 30 captured men were tied to stakes, surrounded by brush, and burned alive. At least 200 other Indians were killed in the slaughter. Coronado later said that Cardenas had misunderstood his orders, and the killings were a mistake. Still, he did nothing. In fact, it would get worse. The locals fled to a Mesa village called Moho, which had good defensive walls. Coronado arrived in January 1541, read off the requirement, and demanded the people surrendered. But that wasn't going to happen. They had seen how their people had been treated. The Spanish would lose several men trying to breach the village's walls, but it was a strong and defensive position. Thus, Coronado laid siege to the Mesa, which relied on rain and snow for water, and there was no way to replenish their food supplies. The Spanish, by the way, took the fight to the local villages, ultimately capturing a dozen or so pueblos in the area. In mid-March, the Tiwa Indians at Moho were just about done. They had endured 80 days bottled up in the fortress and were out of food and water. Coronado allowed the women and children to leave the mesa, but the men refused to surrender. However, at the end of March, these final holdouts tried to escape, but were discovered and a fight erupted. Most of them were killed in the subsequent battle. 
And that marks the end of what today we call the Tiwash War, the first named war between Europeans and Native Americans in what is now the United States. And so Coronado and his men were victorious in their campaign against the Tiwa people, subjugating the area of Tiwash. But what had it gotten Coronado? He had no gold, no silver, no jewels. He only got more stories, stories about great kingdoms in the north or the east or wherever. However, there was one source that intrigued Coronado, and that was the native slave, the Turk, who I introduced a short time ago. The Turk said that he came from a place called Kovira, a place to the east where the lands were good, and quote, gold and silver were as common as prairie dust, end quote. He said people drank from cups of gold and ate off golden plates. Quivira's ruler, he said, napped in the afternoons under a great tree that held many golden bells. And the Turk talked about more than just gold. He said there were fish in the rivers as large as horses, and there were ships so big they required 20 rowers to operate. The Spanish gobbled up these tall tales, so obsessed they were about finding riches. And thus Vasquez de Coronado's quest for gold was not quite over. But that is for next time. We will leave our story here in Tiwesh, the corpses of hundreds of Tiwa natives littering our stage. Next time, we will detail Coronado's quest to find the golden city of Quivira, which will take him all the way to the plains of central Kansas. So that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed part one in our series on Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Join us next time when we wrap up his story. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other super cool shows such as Earn and Invest and History Tea Time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.